0: what your father was like. Most of you, I don't know your father. Some of you, I do. Um, And and most people connected on a different level, maybe even a a deeper level with their mother. But there are a lot of really good dads, and those dads have left a legacy through their children. It's, It's how they raised them, the things that they taught them, the things that they showed them help them to understand that what life was like. And, you know, my dad was a, a really good dad. He taught all of us kids how to work hard. He taught us the importance of having an intimate relationship with God. He modeled a life of prayer and devotion, and he demonstrated what a good marriage looked like. In short, on all accounts, he was a godly father who loved God with all of his heart he loved his wife and his family deeply, and he served Jesus his entire life. But he wasn't perfect, <laughs> you know? I mean, there were times he punished the wrong child, like me. I know you find that hard to believe. There was this one particular time, my younger brother, John, in our family, he was known as John John, and um, we, were, we were playing One-on-one, get this, one-on-one baseball. I don't know if you've ever played it before. It's quite interesting, but I struck him out. He got mad. He threw the bat through the front window of the house. Now, if the bat accidentally slipped out of his hands and it went through the window of the house, it's no big deal. But because he was mad and he, I mean, he just... Threw the bat right through the window of the house. My mom, of course, was in the house. The crash startled her. She came and got us. We went in the house. Our, the church was right next door to the house. My mom got on the phone. Said, "George, John, John just threw a bat through the window of the house because he's mad." My dad came over to the house, and when he walked in, he grabbed the first little kid he saw with an iron grip, and then he put his size 12 twelve and a half triple E boot laces to my backside bam i was like what i'm just here to watch the execution (laughs) i'm not planning to be involved in this judicial tragedy that's going to happen before my eyes and my mom's going like george no that's kenny and he went oh so he reaches in his pocket and pulls out a quarter and says go buy yourself a treat And he grabs John John by the arm and he saw what was coming. I think he actually thought he was off the hook. But then my dad's got John and he's going in circles and so my dad's trying to get a hold of him. (laughs) It was a mess. And he kind of made those mistakes every once in a while. But the other thing is my dad had really big hands. He wore a size 19 wedding ring. This little girly finger, it might be a size nine. It's special. <laughs> So I could put my dad's wedding ring on my big toe and it would fall off. I mean, it was, he had huge, huge hands. And so what would happen is is that when we would go on a road trip, remember, there's seven of us. This is like late 60s, early 70s. Seat belts, they were just kind of like there but weren't really, nobody ever used them. I mean, that just cramped your style. So in the front seat was my dad and my sister between my mom and my dad. And then us four boys are in the back seat on a road trip. Anything longer than five minutes, you know there's going to be a, a breakout about a land dispute in the back seat. You're over the line. You're in my territory. And eventually my dad would go, you boys knock it off back there. Straighten up. That was code for if you don't sit still and be quiet and quit whining, you're going to get Thumper. Now, Thumper was my dad's middle finger on his right hand because that thing was a baby tree trunk. <laughs> and he would be driving down the freeway 75 miles an hour like this, and we didn't do what, we, what he told us to do. That hand would come into the no-fly zone in the back seat, and he would let Thumper fly on the first forehead he found. My wife claims that I suffer from being concussed too many times by Thumper that I'm really not, don't have dyslexia. It's the, the residual effects of Thumper thumping me too many times. But the problem was, when Thumper came flying into the back seat, if you tried to duck, Thumper, you saw him coming, and you were doing this while he's driving? It, it, was, it was bad, because not only would you finally get thumped, but it was kind of like a semi-auto Thumper would reroll real quick, and you'd get a double thump, bump, bump. And then you'd wake up at your destination about six <laughs> weeks later. And, and I tell you all that because I really believe that there were some things that my dad, even though he was a great dad, there were things he could have done differently that would have been great for us kids growing up. That's true of all of us dads. We, we think we're really good and we're, we're really handling things well. I mean, there are times when we're doing better than other times, but in retrospect, after you've raised your kids and, and you're close to, you know, knocking on the pearly gates, you look back and you go like, you know, there are things I could have done better. And so there isn't a single dad on this planet that, that absolutely did anything uh, always perfectly correct. And the reason we need to understand that is because now we're stepping into the Lord's prayer, and Jesus is coming to this place of of showing us this model of prayer, and the way he starts it off is mind-blowing to his disciples. So instead of just reading it, I want you to stand. That means stand up on your feet, actually. And we've got the... The Lord's Prayer right here, this is out of the Matthew one. You may have memorized the Luke one. You may have memorized it from the Old King James or some other version. But we're going to read this together so that we have it together. This, Remember, this is a prayer. So let's treat it like the greatest prayer that's ever been given to us. Our Father in heaven, follow me. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Great, have a seat. As we move into the model of prayer that Jesus gave us, He does something very strange at that time. It was really weird. He says, when you pray... Pray like this, our Father. Now, this, this is like mind-boggling to, to his disciples because for thousands and thousands of years, as people have worshiped God, when they came into a prayer time, they never addressed God as our Father. They talked to God as the creator of the universe, as the almighty God, as the one who could bring life together and destroy life with just his breath. They saw God, even though he was loving, he was loving from a distance. You didn't dare come near to him. It wasn't a relationship that you had with God. It was this entirely something different where God is way out there. There was no relational connection with him. And so as... Jesus steps into this prayer, is starting to mess with everybody's mind. Now, the model that we're looking at in Matthew is a little bit different than the model that is found in Luke. And you might wonder, did Luke get it different? Matthew, did they hear different things? Most of the scholars agree that what happened is is that Jesus, because he often will repeat some of the great things, really big things that he's saying, Jesus gave this model at the Sermon at the Mount and the Luke model was at a different time. So that's why you have two different things going on. But regardless of which one, the Lord's Prayer is large enough and great enough to encompass the whole of our lives. Now, this prayer that, that Jesus gave is, falls into two obvious divisions and it's highlighted by the use of two pronouns. The first part centers on God, using the pronoun your. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. The second part is concerned with man, and the pronoun of us occurs. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, and lead us not into temptation. So this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to focus on the first three statements that center around the person, character, and being of God. It's no accident that Jesus invariably puts prayer in this form. He puts things concerning God first. This exposes the fatal weakness in our own prayers, which so frequently begins with us we rush almost immediately into the series of pleading petitions that have to do with our problems and our needs, our irritations. It has to do with the service to focus our attention upon what is really troubling us and to increase our awareness of our lack of things. And perhaps that's the reason we often enter into prayer and come out of prayer frequently more depressed and frustrated than when we began. Now, what Jesus does is he shows us another way. We must begin with God is what Jesus is showing us. We must take a slow, calm, reassuring gaze at the greatness of God, his eagerness to give, his unwavered patience, his untiring love for us is what we see in God as our father. And then, of course, The first thing we receive in prayer when we enter in that way is a calm spirit. And there's no need to plunge into a panic flood of words to God. So when Jesus says, our fathers, the disciples are all going like, what? Our father? Because they had an understanding that God was the king of everything, seen and unseen that and that Jesus came to flesh came to earth god in flesh and now he's the king that's on the earth and he has come to set things as they should be to make all things right and so when Jesus says to his disciples our father they're going that can't be because god is all powerful all knowing he's made his presence known everywhere And what we know about God is we want to, He's loving, but you want to keep Him at a distance because even in His love, He's at a heartbeat away from absolutely destroying you for you um, disobeying His word. And so there was this, this big disconnect between the relational aspect of God, our Father, and us as human beings. We didn't have that idea of what it looks like. And so Jesus is saying, God is our Father. He's not just all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere, but He is also our Father. And He's not like any human father ever. God is Father who is always patient. He has never pulled out old thumper in the car, never looked back in the back seat and said, I'm going to bring you all down if you don't stop doing that nonsense. God has never done that. He has never lost patience ever. Think about that. God has never lost his patience, not in one moment. He will never abandon us. He will never harm us. He always does good to us. He never runs out of love for us. And oh, remember, remember this, that the things that you think aren't good for you, God's saying, you know what? That's going to be better for you than what you ever thought. I want you to listen to this. God always has time for you. Our Heavenly Father never said, you know what, you need to come back later. I'm pretty busy right now trying to really deal with some stuff in West Africa. You just need to come back later. Or He doesn't go like, oh, come on, not now. That is never His attitude when we enter into this relationship in prayer with God. And whether your dad was as awesome as a human dad could ever be or as awful as a human dad could be, God of the Bible in His fatherly love for us transcends that. He is completely other. He is completely different than any human father has ever been. In fact, Jesus would even say to the best of us, the best dads imaginable, if you who are sinners know how to do good by your kids, how much greater is your Father's love in heaven? Jesus is saying that the very best dad imaginable, imaginable, who only loses his temper, say, like maybe six or seven times in a week, and, and has all the time, even though he's a busy guy and has a ton of work to do, he makes space to hear from you. He wants to talk with you. He'll even go out and play one-on-one baseball with you. He's the best dad, and he is still flawed, and it with a sinful tendency. Jesus is saying, your heavenly father is so much better than your earthly father. He's always available. He always wants to hear from you. No matter what you want to talk about. If you come in and just do the weird thing that kids do with their dads and just start talking about everything, it just kind of becomes verbal diarrhea. It's just coming out. And, and you're talking about school, and you talk about work, about the football game. You talk about the dog and your neighbor's big ugly cat, and oh yeah, about that that person that you really like, and you don't even know their name, and all the rest of that stuff. And God's listening to you, and He's going, "Yep, hmm I get that, sure." And the thing is, is that God never comes and says, "Hey, you know what are you talking about?" He doesn't say, you know what? I don't get what you're saying. Our Heavenly Father's not like that. He's not that way. He's just kind of like, yeah, just keep on letting it roll. I've got my ear attentive to what you have to say. And it's not like uh, us, you know, as an earthly father, it's not the way, way we would be. We would say to our kids as they come in and they're doing, wah, 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 and just going strong, we just kind of say something like, you know what? You need to stop talking for a little bit, okay? Just stop talking until June. I just need to get my bearings. Just give me a a couple of months, would you? But that's not the way God is. This is why this modeled prayer that Jesus gives to us begins with words of relationship. Father. I want to point out that it is Father. And it's not like, hey, daddy big guy in the sky, dude, upstairs. That is not the, the intimacy we're talking about because the word Father that comes to us comes with a degree of respect that is carried with it. And so there, there's this intimacy, but yet there's this respectfulness that comes with it. So when we go into our time of prayer... It's essential to know to whom we're praying. We're not, when we come to prayer, talking about God. We're not engaged in a theological dialogue. We are talking with God. We're going into conversation with Him directly, so it's very essential that we understand to whom we are speaking. Jesus gathers it all up in this marvelously expressed word and says, true prayer must begin with a concept of God as our Father. Now, the Apostle Paul had the, a great understanding of that idea. He had entered into that, that intimate relationship with God, and he wanted the churches to know the same thing. And so in his letter to the Galatians church, here's what he said. Because you are sons and daughters, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. You see, the point that, that Paul is making here is that when he says crying, Abba, Father. That's an intimate understanding of who God is in our lives. It's the same thing of us crawling up into the lap of our father and saying, calling him Daddy. It's like Carissa. When she talks to me, I mean, she calls me dad. She calls me, you know, Faja. (laughs) Sometimes she calls me um, Kenneth. But when she's intimate and she wants my ears, she says, Daddy, and I pay attention. Now, I hear the other ones, but I try to ignore her. It's not that easy. You should try it sometimes. I told her she just needed to quit talking for a couple of months, and she moved to Yakima. So as you look at this passage from Galatians, what it does for us is it immediately eliminates a number of other concepts about who God is. It shows us that prayer, real prayer, is never to be addressed to the chairman of the Committee for Welfare and um, Relief. Sometimes our prayers take on that aspect. We come expecting a handout. We want something to be poured into our laps, something that we, will, we think we need. And in making an appeal, but what we're really doing is filling out the properly prescribed forms to get God's attention. Prayer is also not addressed to the chief of the Bureau of Investigations. It's never to be merely a confession of our wrongdoing with the hope that we can cast ourselves on the mercy of the court, nor is it an appeal to the Secretary of Treasury, some sort of cordial international banker whom we hope to interest in our financing our projects. Prayer is to be out to our Father, who has a father's heart, has a father's love, has a father's strength. And the first and truest note of prayer must be our recognition that we have come to this kind father. We must hear him and come to him as a child in trust and simplicity, with all the frankness of a a child. Otherwise, it's really not prayer. In the letter written to the church in Rome, we see an exchange of position. The exchange from being an outsider and a slave to becoming a child with an inheritance. And it says this in in chapter 8, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons whom we cry, Abba, Father, Abba, Father. There it is again the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may be glorified with Him. You see what Paul is saying here in this letter? He's saying that when you step into this Intimate relationship with God as your father. When through Jesus Christ, his son, you come into that relationship, you are no longer treated as an outsider. You are no longer a slave. You are no longer less than. Because now you have an inheritance with Jesus Christ into the kingdom of God. You've got more than anybody else could ever ask or imagine from God. You've got everything you'll ever need. And you may not realize it now, but at one day, one time, it is going to all come to fruition. Maybe not here and now, but there and then, it's going to be real. Someone has pointed out that this word Father answers all the philosophical questions about the nature of God. As a father, he is a person. Therefore, God is not a blind force behind the inscrutable machinery of the universe. As a father, he is able to hear. And God is not simply an impersonal being, aloof from all of our troubles or our problems. Above all, as a father, he is predisposed by his love and relationship to give a careful, Attentive ear to what each of his children has to say. God is this way for us. From a father, a child can surely expect to hear what he has for them. It's never prayer. uh, It is never prayer until we recognize that we're coming to a patient and tender father. That is the first note of true prayer. The second note, Is one of surrender. Hallowed be your name. This is the petition that makes hypocrites out of most of us. It's easy for us to say, Father, with grateful sincerity. But when we pray, hallowed be your name, we say this with guilty knowledge that as we pray, there are areas in our life in which his name is not hallowed and in which we don't want it to be hallowed. We say, Hallowed be your name. We're praying, May the Lord, may, may the whole of my life be a source of delight to you, and may it be an honor to your name which I bear, which is your name. Hallowed be your name. It is the same thing we find in a prayer of David. In one of his great psalms, Psalms 19, at the end of it he says, Let the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart, be acceptable in your sight, O God, my rock and my redeemer. That is a prayer of hallowed be your name. Sometimes uh, I feel sorry for the small group that I facilitate. They get me twice a week. You guys get a whole seven days rest. They don't. And we've been studying in um, John's Gospel, uh, chapter 14, 15, 16, and 17. We started in September on those four chapters. Here's what's really interesting about the Gospel of John. Up to chapter 13 is the three and a half years of Jesus' life. From 13 through 17 are the last hours of Jesus' life. So there's a lot that's jammed. There are deep and buried nuggets of truth, and it's mind-boggling and mind-blowing. Matter of fact, I spent from May all the way to the end of September reading and rereading those four chapters. They're just so powerful. But in the 17th chapter of John, Jesus is making his high priestly prayer to his Father. This is just before he's going to go out and be taken um, by the, the temple guard and put on trial. And he talks about that his disciples are going to glorify him. He's just not talking about the disciples who were with him at that prayer time. He's talking about every disciple who will ever come to faith in Christ Jesus will bring glory to him. And he says, and it's by your name, Father. He's talking to his heavenly Father. He's still talking to his heavenly Father. He still calls him Father. And he says, it's by your name, Father, that I have given to them that they are protected. You see, it's the name that's this hallowed name that we have that is etched on our hearts. And the trouble is that we so frequently know where there are great areas of our life that are not hallowed. There are certain monopolies which we have reserved to ourselves. Privileged areas we do not wish to surrender. There, Where the name of our wife or the name of our girlfriend or boyfriend or some other esteemed person means more to us than the name of God. But when we pray this, if we pray it with any degree of sincerity or openness or honesty... We're praying, Lord, I open to you every closet. I'm taking every skeleton out for you to examine. Hallowed be your name. There cannot be any contact with God, any real touching of his power, any genuine experiencing of the glorious fragrance and wonder of God at work in the human life until we truly pray. And the second requisite of the true prayer is that we say, Hallowed be your name. But we're not only aware that in each of us, there are areas where God's name is not hallowed, where he cannot write his name. But furthermore, we're aware deep in our being that none of us can make our lives like this. That no one, no matter how hard we try to arrange every area of our life to please him, there is a fatal weakness, a flaw that somehow makes us miss the mark. Even when we try hard to find ourselves unable to do this. But you will notice that this prayer is not phrased as simply a confession or an expression of repentance to this phrase of hallowed be your name. What it is, is it's really a cry of helplessness, trust, in which we are simply standing and saying, Father, we're not to pray so frequently that we do, do pray this way, though. Father, help me to be good. Help me to be better. Is it not rather remarkable that throughout this whole pattern of prayer, not once do you ever find an expression of a desire for the help of a sanctification of life, that which is um, so much of our concern and so much of the concern of Scripture. It's never once reflected in this prayer for God to help us to become better. What Jesus is doing is he's turning our attention entirely away from ourselves and pointing us to the Father. And what we come away with is we're saying something like this. Father, not only do I know that there are areas in my life where your name is not hollowed, but I know also that only you can hollow them. And I am quite willing to simply stand and let you be the Holy One who will actually be first in my life. When we pray that way, then we discover the rest by itself comes easily, so to speak. The person who lets God be his Lord and surrenders to him is drawn quite spontaneously into this great learning process and becomes a different person. Martin Luther once said, you do not command a stone which is lying in the sun to be warm. It will be warm by itself. When we say, Father, there's no area of my life that I'm not willing to let you talk to me about. There's no area that I will hide from you. My sex life, my business life, my social life, my school life, my recreational times, my vacation. That is saying, hallowed be your name. When we pray that way, we discover that God will walk into the darkest closet of our life where the odor is sometimes too much even for us to stand. And he comes and he cleans it out and straightens it up and makes it fit for his dwelling. If we walk in the light, John says, and it's not sinlessness that means we're It means where God is seeing everything. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus, his son cleanses us from all of our sin. The third cry of true prayer, again concerned with God, is a cry of hope. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Now, Sometimes this can be just a a sigh for heaven. I mean, like, who doesn't get a little bit of homesick for heaven once in a while, longing to be free from all the haphazard humdrums of life, to experience the glory we read about in the Bible? Or this can be, as it ought to be, a cry for heaven to come to earth. That is, your kingdom come, your will be done, meaning, may the kingdom of this world Of my world become the kingdoms of our triune God's world. Our God, our Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Who of us does not grow weary of the sickening senselessness of political verbal war taking on right now, and the poverty of morality, and the misery of human despair? and long for that day to come when God shall rule in righteousness over all the earth. That is, your kingdom come, your will be done. But I think this prayer is more than that. I think it's more than a long, wistful look into the future, whether on earth or off earth. It's a cry that God's will may be done through and by the means of the blood, sweat, Tears of life right now, right here. Your kingdom come through what I'm going through at this very moment. That is what this prayer means. Scripture reveals to us a truth that man would never know by himself, but which becomes self-evidence as we look at at life through the lenses of the Word of God. And that is that God builds His kingdom in secret, so to speak. Listen to this. If you've not gotten anything else, if you're just waking up from your nap, listen to this. Because this is worth the price of admittance this morning. When it is least evident that he is at work, this is frequently the time when he is accomplishing the most. When we are least aware of his working, looking back, we see that this was the time when he was doing the most extensive work work of all. Behind the scaffolding of tragedy and despair, God frequently is erecting his empire of love and glory in trials, hardships, disappointments, heartbreak, and disasters. When we think God is silent, we have been abandoned. When we feel God has removed his hand and we no longer sense the friendship of his presence, God frequently is accomplishing the greatest things of all here's the thing is there any liturgy is there any ritual of the church that says this more eloquently than the lord's supper we're here gathered for the breaking of bread for the drinking of wine as it were each is a symbol of the pain The anguish, the sorrow, the bitter, bitter death that Jesus went through. And here's where it all comes to. Because out of the darkness, God calls forth light. Out of despair comes hope. From death comes resurrection. You cannot have resurrection without death. You you cannot have hope without despair. You cannot have light without darkness. By means of defeat, the kingdom of God is born in the human hearts. This is what happens when we pray. My question to you is, do you know God's kingdom in your heart? Do you know the resurrection of your dead life? Maybe you've got a marriage that's on the brink of disaster. God is a master at resurrecting everything that's dead. Your marriage, your relationships, your job, your passions, your heart for Him. He will bring it all back to life. Here's what our prayer would sound like. To come to God as a little child, it would sound like this. Oh Lord, I am but a little child. I do not understand the mysteries of life. I do not know the ways in the world of men. But Lord, I pray that through these very circumstances in which I now find myself, though these present troubles, through these present troubles, these present struggles, your kingdom come. The transmuting element is prayer simple, childlike, trustful, raising out of the hopelessness need of a child to touch a father's heart. That is the prayer model that Jesus gave to us for us to make more than just a rote prayer that we cite once in a while. It is to be the prayer that brings life to our hearts. Amen? Father, we frequently misunderstand life. And even though you have been at, gone to such great lengths to show us the secrets of it, how many times have we rebelled in some foolish resentment against you or your working in our lives? How many times have we turned away in disgust or despair or bitterness? And yet we have not also seen through these hours of resentment and burning shame, and bitterness. You have been at work in love to teach us the truth, to bring to us an understanding of reality. Bring us back to your loving heart. Lord, we pray this prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. In Jesus' name, amen.